Hello and welcome to Superfancast. My name is Chris. I'm joined by Matt and this is Season 2, Episode 8, Pearl Jam. I was thinking earlier today, it must be really hard to make Pearl Jam. Like, how do you get the juice out of pearls? <laughs> you have to boil them really hard. Were you, were you genuinely thinking sugar. that? I was. I was thinking, what would it taste like? <laughs> Maybe it's like oysters. There's, there is, uh, there's ambiguity as to what it means right because eddie's said a couple of things in interviews but over the years but there's never been sort of a conclusive what what does pearl jam mean no um but i've got to say this and um sorry to start this on such a low tone but if if you google pearl jam on google obviously (laughs) one of the first things that comes up is is pearl jam named after sperm (laughs) yeah well i think that's yeah that's where i'm going with it he said early on in in the career, um, in an interview, didn't he? Didn't he make some stupid story up about how he had a grandmother called Pearl and she made her own jam? <laughs> no, that's, that's not a stupid story. He does have a grandmother called Pearl. Oh, does he really have a grandmother called Pearl? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I didn't know that. I thought it was just a made up story. No, and uh, I'm I'm sure she does make lovely jam. Oh, no doubt, no doubt. What what content? There's amazing yeah. content. If you've yeah. never never listened to superfan cast before just come back for for more <laughs> for more amazing content oh like days. that um the band is back together after a little little hiatus isn't it you left me for a couple of weeks and are you talking about us yeah this band Pearl Jam? no no this band i was gonna say they they never had a hiatus have they they never had a hiatus no no we couldn't even keep it together for 18 months but uh but they've managed to go for 30 years no yeah, we're always fighting. Yeah, just just a disclaimer. I might sound a bit different because uh, I'm in the process of moving home and my computer, my microphone, all my stuff is in a, a warehouse somewhere. So I'm doing this on my phone. And uh, I did all the notes on a little little phone screen as well. So if if I don't come out with very many interesting facts, that is... That is why, so I apologise. <laughs> Are you blaming the size of the screen? Yeah, absolutely. Fair enough. Yeah, yeah, no, you gotta have you gotta have an excuse, haven't you? That's uh, as good as any. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you don't see people people researching in in the great libraries of of the world. You know, reading tiny little books. You know, like microscopic books. You know, they want a they want a big book. <laughs> the bigger the book, yeah, the more knowledge exactly. is in it. That's that's how it works. Exactly. Yep. You can fit more knowledge in a bigger book, can't you? Yeah, makes sense. Makes sense. Musically, what's been going on in your life the last few weeks? What's been going on in my life? Well, I've been on a ship again. But in terms of listening, I've been listening... Well, it's been an absolute joy listening to Pearl Jam uh, because this band is super nostalgic for me. And before I would focus on a particular album for weeks on end, whereas this has been an absolute binge from start to finish, taking it all in. And it's been really cool. Besides that, a friend of mine has recommended a band called Return to Forever, who are a band that I have heard of many times, but I've never actually sat down properly to go in. Uh, they are a avant-garde progressive jazz fusion band with um, legends such as Chick Corea and Stanley Clark. I'm just Googling them now because I don't know the name. Oh, you don't? No. So I was listening particularly to an album called romantic warrior it's got a, like a knight in shining armor front it's it's got quite a medieval theme so at the start there's a medieval overture 
There's a track called The Magician, which has absolutely ridiculous bass playing from Stanley Clark, like the fastest bass playing you've ever heard in your life. It's 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 bizarre. It sounds like a mosquito just going. And the final track is called Duel of the Jester and the Tyrant, where the bass and the keys are having a, a having a duel, I guess. Mm. It's funky and also a little bit bonkers. I mean, the whole thing is absolute batshit crazy. <laughs> yeah, it's six um, six tracks and it comes in at 46 minutes. Yeah. Best way I could describe it, this album, it's a bit like um, putting your brain on one of those um, juicer devices. <laughs> right. Squeezing it. <laughs> I'm like, oh my goodness. You know, like, I, you have to sit down because the the complicated sounds coming out of this album it just it just knocks you over honestly it, it, it's it's like it, you know there's the avant-garde but it's it's so it's so well uh, composed and constructed everything's very purposeful it's so harmonically complex and bizarre and rhythmically insane but absolutely brilliant yeah so make sure you're sitting down if you listen to it because you'll just fall over and your head will explode into a million pieces yeah i might give that a listen that sounds interesting the credits on it are amazing like every there's only four of them obviously and they and the, the they're all credited for just insane number of instruments um i mean there's a lot of percussion in there but uh yeah i mean stanley clark alone is uh electric bass piccolo bass acoustic bass bell tree hand bells percussion um i thought what's a bell tree i just means it's just yeah what's a bell tree I have no idea. It's probably worth a Google. Yeah, well, I've just Googled it. So it's a a Chinese instrument, (laughs) (laughs) Chinese percussion instrument. It's inverted metal bowls. So it kind of looks like a stack of bowls with the smallest one on the bottom. um, And they're sort of bowls down, like face down on top of each other. And I don't know how you play it, but uh, maybe you hit it with a stick or something. I don't know. But that's a bell tree. There you go. Yeah, uh, I'm loving that. I also, you know, I'm a huge fan of awesome band names. Like, I will go straight for a, a band with a really good name. Yep, you love a wild name, and you like a mask. Yeah, that's it. That's <laughs> just in life. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, you posted on the Twitter page about a band called Telekinetic Yeti a while back. Oh, right. Yeah, do you remember that? Yeah, I do. Well, they had a, they had a new album out, I think, didn't they? And... um and I think I might have posted their, their cover art. Yeah, uh, it's called Abominable, or the album that I listened to anyway. Stoner, doom metal, it's, it's super sludgy and th- thick, heavy. It's like walking through tar. Hmm. These riffs are super heavy, but yeah, I'm loving it. I'm really loving it. I've only listened to a few songs once, but yeah, I love it. Um, even just for the name alone. <laughs> yeah, totally. It's a, it's an awesome name. I'm um I'm a massive fan of cover art as you as you probably know. And uh and so sometimes I'll I'll post a record just because I I really love the artwork. I hadn't actually listened to Telekinetic Yeti, but um yeah, Super Sludgy Doom Metal is uh is up my alley, so I'll definitely give give that a listen to. Um thanks for reminding me. So I have been listening to uh, a lot of Pearl Jam. And also, I won't talk about it too much because we might talk about it in the episode. I've been listening to a lot of uh, Mother Love Bone. Apple is probably in my top ten albums of all time. It's a, mm. it's an amazing record, amazing record. So surprising, also how many people don't know Mother Love Bone. They've just 
Yeah, I, I, well, I guess because because the career ended when it did, but I'm surprised that Apple didn't isn't regarded higher by um, by people. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. Yeah, because yeah, because even now, you know, thirty years on, you would have thought it would have got that uh, that legendary status by now, but uh, it's it still seems to be. Uh, yeah, it's it's in the undercurrents. It's still not, it's still not up there on the pedestal, and it deserves to be, which is a real shame. But yeah, a yeah. massive fan of that album exactly. anyway, yeah. and and because of Pearl Jam, because we've been researching Pearl Jam, I've got got back into it. I hadn't probably hadn't listened to it for six months or so, so really nice to be listening to that again. Yeah. So for for people who don't know, what's the connection? Well, there's quite a lot of connection actually, but I mean the easiest the easiest connection is that Mother Love Bone were a. Um, uh, I mean, musically, it's, it's a bit difficult, but I, but I guess actually, if you don't if you don't know much about grunge and you just hear their music, it's kind of glam rocky a little bit. Um, but they are considered mm. the spark for um, a lot of the start of the grunge movement in Seattle. Um, and certainly, Andrew Wood, who was the the singer to Mother Love Bone, is is regarded by most figures within the the grunge movement as um, as that 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 ignition. Um, to sort of kick the, the Seattle underground uh, sort of alternative rock movement at that time. Yeah. Um, but the connection with Pearl Jam is that uh, Jeff Ament and Stone Gossard were both in, in Mother Love Bone, uh, and that is obviously 40% of Pearl Jam there. Uh, and there's this further connection as well, but I don't want to, I don't want to steal too, too much content. We, we'll talk about it in, in, the, in the body of the episode. Yeah, but it definitely needs a lot more attention, that album. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Yeah, phenomenal album. Um, I suppose we can talk about that bit because that's not Pearl Jam related. So for those listening who don't know the Mother Love Bone story, um, Mother Love Bone was the sort of the brainchild of a guy called Andrew Wood, who was um, a vocalist and yeah, songwriter from not Seattle, but close by, I think. I think they lived not, not a million miles away from Seattle. Uh, he was in a band before that with his brother, I think, called Malfunction. They're quite different to Mother Love Bone, though. Mother Love Bone's music is is quite refined. The songwriting on it is fantastic and um, real hits. You know, they've got amazing hooks. They've real catchy tunes. Malfunction wasn't. It was a lot more experimental, a bit wilder. But unfortunately, Andrew was um, on and off of heavy drugs, a heroin. He was a heroin user, and he he checked himself into rehab actually. And I think that he'd not long got out of rehab about th- two or three months before the release of Mother Love Bone's debut album and he ended up overdosing on heroin uh, passing away and so the, the release of Apple was then postponed a little bit but it did come out that year I think or maybe oh no I think maybe it came out 12 months later so it was delayed a little bit and came out 12 months later and then of course that was the end of Mother Love Bone because you know it wasn't a band without Andrew he was the he was the star yeah absolutely yeah and so that was that was kind of the end of that and then what happens to the members of Mother Love Bone is well we'll we'll talk about that in the episode. That's the bit of the story we'll talk about in the episode. And then what else have I been listening to? I've been listening to uh, Hailstorm's first album, the oh, self-titled yeah, nice. Hailstorm. Yeah, I first heard this in about 2012, I think, because I remember I was given an iTunes voucher for Christmas, and and I remember buying this oh, wow. and a Shine Down record, which I can't remember which Shine Down album it was. But I was obviously going through a phase at that time, and I was I was a gym nut at that time, and I remember listening to this album a lot at the gym. And so now, when I listen to Hailstorm's self-titled album, it reminds me of being at that gym 
and but anyway it's it's a it's a brilliant record isn't it it's mainstream hard rock and it's uh really typified by by uh lizzie hale's amazing vocals um oh she's great she's phenomenal yeah um the hooks are amazing so catchy brilliant tunes every track on that album is every track on that album could be a single that's that's what what's great about that record there's no fillers there at all they're all songs worthy of of chart success real belters and and even the ballads are, are so powerful real power ballads all carried by by lizzie's strength and energy and, and confidence just just phenomenal um i i really love that album but it wasn't until a couple of years later that i remember listening to anything else by them and i uh i think it must have yeah, I don't know. I was living in London at that time, so it must have been at least 2014 that I listened to their next album after um, after Hellstorm. And that was called The Strange Case Of, I think. And I really disliked it. Mm-hmm. I really didn't like it. And I haven't listened to anything since, uh, anything else by them since. So it's only that debut album that I've heard and and The Strange Case Of, which I didn't like. And I think the, I think what I didn't like about that second one was um, the, the songwriting. They just weren't, you know that debut album like i say it was it's cover to cover chart toppers really like they could release any of those tracks as singles mm. and then the next the follow-on album wasn't like that they not all the tracks could could carry themselves and lyrically it was sometimes a little amateur and a bit i don't know I, I really didn't like it and i thought it sounded a bit juvenile a step backwards from the self-titled album really but maybe that's just a bad record maybe the one after that is still good and i just haven't given it a chance yeah, maybe. Sometimes bands open open up with such a great record, you you can't help but compare everything else afterwards to it, can you? Yes, that's a very fitting, very fitting statement, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> but that's about it for me, you know. And, and I'm I'm still going through my Paramore phase, but I won't I won't bore you with that. You're always going through a Paramore phase. I've been going through a Paramore phase for a long time, haven't I? When does it stop being a phase and start being? just being a fan yeah well i'm definitely a fan definitely a fan there's mm. there's no denying that i think it's it's yeah. it's a good phase to be in though because uh surprisingly i did i didn't know this until you know the last few months when i've been listening to a lot of their music they do have a really varied sound it's not just five emo albums at all like it's it's really develops it really progresses a lot and then of course you've got Haley williams two solo albums on top of that which are another 180 degree turn it's it's amazing like to, to listen to all their all their music it's super varied really really good i'd recommend it anyway i'm not going to talk loads yeah. about about paramore so shall we um shall we get started oh let's let's go for it pearl jam are an american grunge and alternative rock band that formed in 1990 the original lineup included jeff ament uh, on bass Stone Gossard and Mike McCready on guitar, Eddie Vedder on vocals, and Dave Crisson on drums. Is that pronounced correctly? Uh, I have no idea. Yeah, I will go for Dave Crisson. The next drummer doesn't have a much easier name, but anyway, Dave Crisson on drums. Their smash debut album 10 was released in 1991, after which drummer drummer Dave Abrusez joined the band. The band released two more platinum-selling albums in 93 and 94, before changing drummers again, bringing in Jack Irons. Their success continued with another studio album, and in 98, a final lineup change recruiting ex-Soundgarden drummer Matt Cameron. In 2000, Pearl Jam began releasing live albums, putting out 
over 70 in 2000 and 2001. After two more studio albums, they changed labels from Epic and eventually began releasing music independently. They went on to release a further three albums this way, including their most recent Gigaton in 2020. Pearl Jam have maintained an A-list career for 30 years and are recognised as one of the only major players from the 90s grunge movement still together. They are regarded as one of Rock's best live acts and show no signs of stopping soon. Very well put. Yeah, there's a lot of typos there. That's why I kept making mistakes. Like a Pearl Jam? What's that? <laughs> what's uh, what's your history with Poodle Jam? <laughs> Poodle Jam? <laughs> yeah. uh, oh, goodness. So I first heard the song Alive when I was about 13 and thought it was amazing and so I bought 10 the album and I thought that was the best album of all time Uh, it was my favorite album all through school and since leaving school it's been in my top five albums or it's always been in my top five albums I think it's like a perfect album honestly and people used to say or maybe they didn't but I like to think that they said that I looked like Eddie Vedder when I was at school, because I had long hair, you know, now I look like a cross between a potato and a hedgehog, whereas <laughs> I, I had like, I had shoulder length hair and I, I kind of looked like him and I sort of, sort of sung like him. So I thought, oh, this is cool. This is like, this is my jam. <laughs> no pun intended. And yeah, so I bought a few other albums and was I was super passionate about this band. I absolutely love them. I never actually got to see them, unfortunately. But I've always had a special place in my heart for them. There's still time to see them. Yeah, but they're, they're quite expensive. I mean, I'm sure they're so worth it, but I, I just don't have the have the disposable income at the minute. Yeah. Um, but yeah, they, they don't seem to be uh, slowing down in any way. They're still very good live. Although I would have loved to have seen them live, you know, in the in the early nineties. Yeah, absolutely. Just because yeah. it's it's such a cool energy. Like that's it's just such a brilliant era of music. So yeah, I mean, I don't have any tattoos or any special um, special moments. I just I just love this band. I think they're phenomenal, fantastic. You know, I love bands with principles as well. Like they they're very open about what they believe in and and the way they uh, stood up against Ticketmaster. I really appreciated that as a rebellious teen. <laughs> so, yeah, I just, it's, it's a great band. I love this band. So that's my history. Cool. Yeah, so I also remember hearing Alive when I was probably about same age, you know, early teens. And I distinctly remember Alive one of being being one of the few tunes that I downloaded from from LimeWire or Kazar, one of the two. But I didn't have I didn't have thousands of songs from from Kazar. So you know I've probably I've probably had like a hundred songs I ever downloaded from Kazar because our dial up was so slow it would take days to get a song. I'd I'd download a song for two or three days sometimes. But I definitely remember downloading Alive. And then for some reason I didn't really dig into Pearl Jam. I didn't know much else by them. Uh, until I discovered Evenflow a good few years later and again absolutely fell in love with Evenflow but but a lot of that was the the video the live performance and the video and just Eddie's energy 
and it's just yeah. amazing. It's an amazing show. Although that's the one when he's he's climbing up the like the scaffolding, isn't he? Yeah, in like the in in the bridge. Yeah, in the bridge when it all slows down a bit and quietens down, and he climbs yeah. up into the into the rafters and, and drops down, and it's just amazing. Yeah, it's really amazing. It's an amazing tune, anyway. But again, I didn't really look yeah. that much further into Pearl Jam. I organically ended up hearing, um, yeah, a lot of the other hits uh, just through the radio and through friends that were into Pearl Jam. So I ended up knowing a lot of tunes by Pearl Jam, but I've never really. Yeah, I've never really sat down and listened to a lot of Pearl Jam. Really, uh, I don't know why that is. I just, yeah, I just haven't got around to it. Really, there's not, there's nothing against them at all. I really like their music. Really like their music, actually. There's probably not, there's not a song on ten that I dislike. But, but, yeah, that's one, that's one album out of eleven. But yeah, that that's the one that. Before this, I knew the songs from ten and a few from verses, and I've discovered that there are quite a few other singles over the years that I knew. I just didn't realize I knew them. But most of it's just been organic. It's not been me searching them out. Yeah, that's yeah. it. All right, Matthew, I will ask five questions to help us discover a wee bit more about Pearl Jam. I'm going to be asking those five questions to self-proclaimed superfan Mark from New York City a little bit later. Mark will get one point per correct answer, five points, and he will earn the title forevermore super fan are you ready cool. uh n- n- yeah okay yeah sure go for it full disclosure i have given you a couple of clues over the last few days as to, to the, some of the kinds of questions i might ask don't tell them that <laughs> so i wonder i wonder if my clues have been useful but well, anyway we'll find out won't we? okay question one When Pearl Jam played on Saturday Night Live in 1994, what was written on the headstock of Eddie's guitar? Oh, my days. Uh, I have not got a a freaking clue. No, I... uh, Can you give me a clue? Uh, Do you... Do you want to get the... Do you want to get the point, or do you just want to get a clue so that you can try and make a fair guess? I I haven't got the point, so yeah, okay. I just, I just okay. want to try and get it. Okay, so it's in relation to something, uh, a historical event that happened eight days before their performance on Saturday Night Live. Ooh, a historical event. Ooh. No, I'm, no, I'm not, I'm going to embarrass myself with my knowledge of history, so no. Uh, okay, it said on the headstock of Eddie's guitar, it said Kurt. Oh, of course, of course. Yeah. Derp. In honour of uh, Kurt Cobain, obviously. Oh, uh, you know, I was, I was, I was thinking of like historical events. Like, was it the Berlin Wall? Yeah, I threw you off, didn't this... I? I threw you off. Sorry about that. Something... Yeah. But that's a that's a major Vietnam. event, isn't it, in music history? Oh, for sure, absolutely. Yeah, especially with these guys. Yeah, totally. Well, so let's talk about it. So Kurt died just eight days before that performance. So it was it was fresh. It was really fresh. Um, and as well as writing Kurt on the on the top of his guitar, he also had a K on his shirt over his heart. But I, d- I haven't seen that. I did watch their Saturday Night Live performance 
and I didn't notice the K. He's wearing like an overshirt. I think maybe at the end of the performance, he he took his overshirt off to show that he had a K on his shirt. Um, but yeah, it's that's kind of yeah, both obviously in honor of Kurt. Um, and they had a they had a weird relationship, Kurt and 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 Eddie, because during his lifetime, Kurt had been a bit critical of Pearl Jam, saying that bands like Pearl Jam and Alice in Chains were corporate puppets and being pushed into the grunge bandwagon by their label. Yeah, yeah. Um, they were they were kind of a bit too commercial, I guess, and they weren't genuine. I think that's what he was he was aiming for. Yeah, yeah, but it, so, but so he changed. But he on. changed his mind. Well, he changed his tone uh, later on in a Rolling Stone article. Uh, in an interview, he he said he shouldn't have done that. Yeah, he should have slagged off the company instead of the band. That's right. Yeah, Although I don't know. I don't know if that's much better though, because I think Pearl Jam are very much they're very genuine, very much who they are. I don't think they are making music that someone else has told them to make. You know. Yeah, absolutely. I'm a hundred percent behind that. Um, he he said, I don't know where this quote was from. I can't remember what interview this was from, but this is a quote from Kurt. He said, "Those bands have been in the hairspray cock rock scene for years, and all of a sudden they stop washing their hair and start wearing flannel shirts. It doesn't make any sense to me. There are bands moving from LA and all over to Seattle, and they claim they've lived here all their lives. Well, that's not that's not Pearl Jam. So he shouldn't have he shouldn't have included Pearl Jam in that because Pearl Jam." Are, well, let's talk about what grunge is first for for the listener that's been living in in a cave. Grunge is a difficult a difficult genre to define because, as far as I see it, I don't know, you can tell me if if you see it any differently. But as far as I see it, there's kind of two different buckets of grunge artists. They you have a particular sound, which you know some bands are defined as grunge because they have a particular sound, and that certainly comes out more that that part of the grunge. Uh, term comes out more in post-grunge because post-grunge is a genre that is not defined by a location at all it's people that were inspired by and influenced by bands of the grunge movement um, and have uh, you know have built on that um, a bit later in the 90s but grunge uh, the sound yes it had a particular dirty sound but it was also alternative bands that came out of an underground scene in Seattle in the early 90s. So it's, it's very much tied to Seattle. And, um, and actually, uh, there's a lot of bands that had very varied sounds at that period. And it's, it, yeah, there's times where there's, there's, there's grunge bands that you would not necessarily put in the same genre if you're just listening to their music and yeah, listening to yeah, the sound of their music. Would you agree? Uh, I, I guess I don't know much about the Seattle scene, but there is a particular sound in my head when I hear the word grunge, mm. and a particular attitude as well. Like very, uh, I wouldn't say quite depressed, but very emotive lyrics and a lot of distortion. A lot of it's quite punky, but it's not. It's not all the way punk. It's, it's it's really hard to define because I can hear it in my head, but I can't describe it in words, you know. Um, but I would say that Pearl Jam's earlier stuff is what I would call grunge, whereas later on it's not grunge. <laughs> Just to, to me. Yeah, I don't know. I think I think there's a lot. Of, I think it's a bit like remember in the Polvo episode when we looked at the Chapel Hill indie scene, mm. and 
you know, that all those bands refer to themselves as being part of that movement, but they all sound completely different. And if you look at grunge, yeah. if you look at a band like Green River, and then you listen to mm-hmm. Ten, for example, they're very different styles of music. Yeah, definitely, definitely. So yeah, it's, it's a it's a really it's a really strange one, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> I remember at school um, there was a subculture called grungers. I don't know if that was a thing in the US or anywhere else, but mm. it was grungers, and grungers were very into. Well, it wasn't just grunge music. We were into. No any kind of mainstream rock um but there's definitely a fashion like the fashion that pearl jam show in in say the, like the even flow video like the flannel um clothes and you know like shorts and but massive jumpers <laughs> yeah long hair yeah timberland uh, boots with cargo shorts yeah that's it, that's it. yeah <laughs> yeah uh, it's, it's, it was just the fashion, and but at yeah. the time it was like, well, this is just this is just the way we dress. Yeah. Um, but it wasn't necessarily a grunge thing. And and just also just to explain a bit more, so I think that saying that Kurt was wrong to include Pearl Jam in his his criticisms of of bands claiming to be from Seattle. So just to stress, I think that Pearl Jam are really the the, the polar opposite to to what he's describing there because. Like we talked about earlier, so after Mother Love Bone split, before forming Pearl Jam, there was a band called Temple of the Dog, which was uh, in honour of Andrew Wood. So it was formed by a bunch of Seattle musicians, and uh, it was a tribute to, to Andrew Wood. And included in Temple of the Dog was Jeff Ament and Stone Gossard from Mother Love Bone, but also Mike McCready, who went on to be in um, uh, Pearl Jam. And Eddie Vedder features on a few tracks on that Temple of the Dog album as well. So, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, it's, well, ba- just... you've basically got Pearl Jam there. I mean, they're, yeah. they're as Seattle as they come. <laughs> yeah, definitely. That was actually Eddie Vedder's first um, singing first recording, gig. I think. Mm. Yeah, first singing gig. That's a pretty big gig. And, and he's mm. duetting with uh, Chris Cornell. Yeah. And it's, it's such an interesting contrast of singing styles. Yeah, but it works so well, really beautiful. It's a great album. It's a fantastic album. I remember the first time I heard it because I obviously knew Soundgarden's music and I knew Pearl Jam's music, and I it had come on on the shuffle, uh, on uh, I guess on Spotify or something. It had come on on shuffle, so I hadn't chosen to listen to it, and I can't remember what song was playing, but I just remember hearing it and thinking, I know all the sounds I'm listening to right now, <laughs> like. I know the sound of these singers, and I know the sound of this music, but I don't know what band it is. And I, well, I could see on my phone it said Temple of the Dog, but I was like, who is this? I know all these sounds. And then looked it up and realised, well, because I know all of these musicians. I just yeah, just didn't know the band. Um, so then, of course, they, they like 80% of Temple of the Dog went on to form Pearl Jam. So they, they're really a band that, uh, yeah, were very ingrained in the Seattle alternative rock scene. And then... The drummer of Soundgarden joins Pearl Jam full time. Yeah, on. yeah. Matt Cameron. Yep. So Pearl Jam are not in uh, not in the same not in the same bucket as uh, as Alice in Chains. Okay. So uh, you didn't get that, did you? No. Okay. So no points. Question two. This might be the one. Question two. I got it in my heart. Did you? Oh, that's good. That's that's yeah. all that counts. Uh, unfortunately, you don't get a point for getting it in your heart. Damn it. Question two. Who photographed the Angora goat on the cover of Versus? 
Uh, it was Jeff Ament. Yeah, it was Jeff Ament. Yes, yes, it was. Uh, he is actually a really arty guy. I think he was like a like an art student before he joined the band. Oh, was he? But he's 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 definitely done a lot of art. Like he's done the artwork for for quite a few of the albums actually. Has he? I didn't realize that. He did the cover for Ten. Well, he made the 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 wood cut out mm-hmm. words Pearl Jam. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so he kind of he kind of made that. That counts uh, more he, than I did. Yeah, I, th- I think the concept of most of the covers was was from him. Uh, he did the cover for Yield, the the photograph. That's yeah, I like I that. Leave, yeah. Um, Riot Act. He also photographed that. The, the skeletons. Riot Act is not an album cover that strikes me that that much. There's there's well, there's, there's kind of two album covers that I don't like. Riot Act is one of them. I wonder if you can guess what the other one is. Is it Lightning Bolt? Of course it's Lightning Bolt. What an awful album cover. Why would they do that? Well, can, can I say something that yep. might boil your piss? Go on. <laughs> yeah, um, go on. Well, uh, Lightning Bolt actually won the award for best recording package at the 57th annual Grand Awards. What does that even mean, best recording package? What does that mean? Well, it's 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 the overall package. So it's not just the front cover; it's the the art inside, um, the the whole visual aspect of the album. Have you have you got Lightning so, Bolt by any chance? Uh, I have not. I've I've heard it's got lots of like, it's almost like skater graffiti art inside right. that, that relates to the the lyrics, but I have not seen the the inside. I've just seen the front cover, which it doesn't look great. I mean, the front cover looks like a a collage like a combination of clip art that from like if you go onto powerpoint and you you click on the shapes and you just pull like a lightning bolt shape and then you pull like a a circle shape um and then it's just lots of those uh, really i mean it's 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 rubbish isn't it you think it's rubbish (laughs) well i don't i wouldn't say it's rubbish it was a bit jarring when i first saw it so it was made by a guy called don pendleton who uh, is best known as a skateboard graphic artist. Right. And I think if you saw the Lightning Bolt cover as a big painting, mm-hmm. like on a, on someone's wall, I think it would be really striking and really interesting. But just on an on an album, it doesn't look quite doesn't quite have the same effect. Yeah, it doesn't, does it? Um, but uh, but but you you quite like the self titled album cover, don't you? <laughs> See, this is this is a this is an interesting one, right? Because yes, I do. I think it's an incredibly iconic album cover, but I'm yet to discover. Like, since we've been researching this band, you've said, and I've seen online that a lot of people dislike this. But I think it's uh, I, I, maybe it's that people can't get their head around what the band were thinking just to put half an avocado on the front of their album. Um, and I guess, yeah, I guess that's a valid question. I mean, what is the point just to put half an avocado? But it's a it's a really cool modern image. It's you don't forget it, like, and it's an album cover that before researching this episode, I've definitely not listened to that self-titled album before. But I have one hundred percent seen that album cover before. Like I know that album cover. You don't forget it. Mm. I actually bought the album based on the uh, on the cover. I, I saw it in the shop window and I thought, "Whoa, that's cool." Well, there you go. So I bought it. 
They, I mean, apart from the two that I've pointed out that for me are not great, which is Riot Act and, and Lightning Bolt, I think all of their albums have really cool artwork. Can I say also, I think the cover for No Code, um, I find it really creepy. I've always found it a little bit disturbing. Yeah, some of the eyes are really, really creepy. Um, so it's it's yeah, a like, it's one yeah. two three. It's like a a grid of square pictures, and they're all close up images. Most of them are either real or drawn eyes and mouths. But there's also just other random things like there's a plug socket and a light switch and a pool ball yeah well one of the eyeballs is uh that of dennis rodman you know the basketball player is it <laughs> yeah i think it's the one that's all bloodshot but i've never seen his eyes before i've only ever seen him with sunglasses on so that's true that yeah. Really him but yeah yeah that's it yeah and if you open up the no code cover in full it's folded into quarters it becomes this huge motif it's almost like a like a mosaic of photographs, but it makes this symbol. It's like a triangle with an eyeball in the middle. Yeah. Some versions of the CD came with the lyrics printed on Polaroid pictures. It's like an arty thing. It only came with nine pictures, so you'd have to get more than one album to have all the lyrics. Oh, that's like naughty. songs on it. That's naughty. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. You can, like... <laughs> kids trading them in the in the playground <laughs> yeah that's that's a little bit bjork isn't it yeah i think it's quite cool i think it's it's a bit different and i really like the the cover of backspacer yeah so it's it's a similar theme in that it's a grid isn't it of six pictures but these are cartoons like comic strip pictures yeah i think there's i think there's nine pictures yeah they're, they're, they're oh yeah nine sorry really nine. surreal really surreal like i think someone's someone's experiencing like an alien invasion and there's a train on fire. Mm. <laughs> it's bizarre, like dreams. But uh, the album is such a positive, upbeat album. It's it's it's, it's super, it's super happy. And the cover, I guess, I don't know if it suits it or not. But it's definitely a diff- different one. It's definitely a unique one. Yeah, I think all the album covers don't necessarily represent what's on on the record. But um, but I like that they, you know, they they use really cool artwork for all their album covers none, none of the albums well apart from lightning bolt none of the albums are, are glossed over from the art department are they oh and and by oh, is it binaural or, it's definitely binaural isn't it it's yeah binaural no it's bi- <laughs> binaural yeah <laughs> the artwork on the front and also inside it's it, it's a load of really beautiful photographs from the hubble space telescope mm. and this is another album cover that is uh it's it's easily topping people's not topping rather in people's sort of top 50 album covers of all time i think like iconic album mm. covers that you again it's yeah. one of those ones that everyone knows even if you've never heard this album yeah and they got permission from nasa to use those photos oh that's cool yeah yeah like in the in the linear notes there's there's a bunch of nasa top dogs who they thank that's cool. That's nice. I would have given them. I, I would have given them a credit for something in in the music, so that they, yeah, they'll go down in history on discogs of <laughs> a bunch of scientists, what, like uh, like playing the spoons, like art direction or something. Oh, I see. <laughs> like on the music. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. 
All right. The answer to the question was um, about verses, wasn't it? Yes. And we've not yeah. really talked about the music yet, so let's talk about let's talk about verses quickly. Oh yeah, yeah. That's a, a very angry album, isn't it? It's, it's so raw and yeah. It's it's oh god, I'm lost. Yeah, it is. I mean, ten it's, is very polished, and I think that it's it's a it's a big. I mean, it hits you pretty hard after listening to ten, definitely. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's very hard hitting. I mean, the, the lyrics. The, the the drumming is ridiculous on verses as well. Mm. Like it's it's just like like cannonballs hitting you. And and yeah, the the guitar it sound filthy. You know, um, Eddie sounds absolutely furious <laughs> the whole way through. And you know, they said that the the I guess the theme of the album is felt quite trapped. You know, with the whole being such a famous band, that's what the the album cover is in reference to them feeling like like a trapped sheep or, or a goat yeah. in a cage, you know? And, and so they didn't really, well, they didn't release any music videos for this album or for quite a while after that, because oh. they didn't want to fit into this archetype of what they had to do. So they didn't do as many interviews. They didn't do music videos and they did the whole Ticketmaster fiasco. So yeah, they were trying to be their own, their own people with this album yeah and there, i think there was a lot of negativity around the recording of the album as well it seems that they were not particularly happy but uh, specifically with eddie i think that there was a lot of tension between eddie and the rest of the band uh he wasn't very happy and that caused tensions mm. and stresses with the rest of the band uh and eddie said in an interview this wasn't when the album came out this was a few years later i haven't got i haven't written down when it was but he said this was the album he enjoyed recording the, the absolute least and i think that i think that that's uh reflected by the whole band and i'm not sure i'm not entirely sure why that was but maybe maybe the things that you said you know that they were really shot into the limelight with 10 and they became superstars straight out the gate so i think that's the curse of being a very charismatic lead vocalist or a frontman of a of a very popular you know you are you're the focus of a lot of people and and the media I guess he would have he would have felt a lot of pressure at that point. Yeah, yeah, but good, great record, great record, and I like its position in their catalog as well. I think it works really well after ten, because you're not going to create you're not going to create another ten. So uh, it was it was nice to have a, diff, a slightly different angle. Definitely, definitely, yeah. They 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 couldn't they couldn't repeat it. You know, they had to do something different. Question three: What baseball team does Eddie Vedder support? Uh, Chicago Cubs. There you go. You were worried about that, weren't you? I was a bit, yeah. I was a bit, but <laughs> they're, they're very sporty, uh, These the guys in Pearl Jam, aren't they? They're, they love sport. Yeah. You know, they love baseball. They love um, basketball. They like a bit of skateboarding. Mm-hmm. And Eddie is a surfer as well. Yeah. Yeah, super sporty people. Yeah, totally. I mean, he uh, and Chicago Cubs, he's a super fan of Chicago Cubs. He is obsessed with the Chicago Cubs. He's from Evanston originally, which is a suburb of Chicago. And yeah, I mean, I don't know much about baseball at all or Eddie's relationship with baseball, but uh, but I've got one good story about baseball. I'll tell you why one good story. So in 2008, you might know this, in 2008, Eddie was at the Chicago Cubs fantasy camp. Eddie, he apparently goes to fantasy camp quite regularly. Like every couple of years, he goes to the Chicago Cubs fantasy camp. So anyway, he's there and Ernie Banks, who is apparently a very 
well-known first baseman for the Cubs, asked Eddie if he would write a song for the team. So Eddie wrote the song called All The Way. It was released. It was it was digital download, but then the CD single was, was released. It was only available in stores in Chicago, but it became a massive Chicago hit. And anyway, who else? <laughs> who else do you think or who else do you know is from Chicago and is a bit of a recurring character on Superfancast? Oh, go on. Tell me. <laughs> Everyone's favorite baby, Billy Corgan. <laughs> We might sound a little different, because due to technical difficulties, we've had a, a quick two-day break. We had to we had to stop recording, so we're, we're back onto it now, so I can continue with my Billy Corgan story. Oh, mate. So start it again, because so I don't want it ruined. You've waited two days for this. I have. I've been thinking okay. about it all, all this time. Come on. <laughs> so, um, so Eddie Vedder, he'd, he'd written this song all the way for the Chicago Cubs, and it became a bit of a hit in Chicago. Uh, it was it had a digital download, but it was it was only released as a CD single in stores in Chicago, and it was like the anthem for Chicago Cubs that year. I think that was two thousand eight. Now Billy Corgan, who somehow manages to creep his way into almost every episode of Superfancast, but Billy Corgan is also from Chicago, and he's a, a major Cubs fan. He commentates games on WXRT radio. He uh, he often throws the first pitch at Cubs games, and he's a big supporter oh, really? of, supporter of the the, wow. the team. So, at a Smashing Pumpkins concert on November twentieth, two thousand and eight, at the Chicago Theater, Billy criticized uh, Eddie's song. He said, "If the Cubs did have a chance this last year, fucking Eddie Vedder killed it." <laughs> <laughs> he said, "Last I checked, Eddie ain't living here." Eddie ain't living here to write a song about my fucking team. He's oh. just such a misery, isn't he, Billy Corgan? <laughs> so, he's such, Sounds better. He's such a wet blanket. Oh, my God. Anyway. Oh, he's a baby, isn't he? He is a big baby. Uh, eight years later, 2016, the Cubs won the World Series and they released a video set to uh, Eddie Vedder's All The Way. So, yeah. Joke's on yeah. you, Billy. They actually released a, a live album of their 2016 performance at the stadium. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah well, I don't know why I sound surprised. Two. I mean, they've released a live album of, of everything, haven't they? And a concert documentary. Yeah, it's called Let's Play 2. I don't oh, know cool. what that means. I'm not a baseball fan, but yeah, that's pretty cool. I found out also, because um, I love old video games. I'm a, I'm a massive fan of retro games. To promote the film... Uh, the the documentary they released an 8-bit uh, browser game so 8-bit would have been like you know the super nintendo or probably even before that actually the nintendo entertainment system that kind of graphics and what year was uh, this and it was a uh, i'm not sure it was, a, it was a few years ago but they this this was pr- to promote their 2016 documentary and it <laughs> it plays uh, i'm actually going to post i'll post this on the facebook page it actually plays a like an eight bit style version of Jeremy in the background. It's really funny. <laughs> it's like like Tetris, you know, that kind of plinky plonky like. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, you got this fun game of playing baseball, and there's this song about you know, uh, uh, you know, some some pretty grotesque things going on. That's cool. 
There you go. You, I had said to you uh, last week that I was going to mention something to do with baseball. And you said, oh, no, I'm going to have nothing to say. There you go. You found something to say about baseball, yeah. didn't you? Yeah, I found something. Yeah. 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 So Eddie's from Chicago, obviously. Uh, but he didn't... He, I can't remember when he left Chicago, but he left when he was a boy. And he moved to... Where did he move to? Somewhere in California. Moved to San Diego. So yeah, he was he was born in Chicago or Evanston, just outside in the suburbs, and then he moved to San Diego when he was a boy. And he, I think, he spent most of his teenage years in San Diego. It wasn't until later that he that he eventually went back to Chicago. But he obviously uh, feels like a Chicagoan at heart. Is that what they say, Chicagoan? I don't know, Chicago person. It's what they say now. Yeah. But uh, Pearl Jam, on the whole, have have got Seattle pedigree, really, uh, with the exception of. Matt Cameron. Do you know where Matt Cameron's from? No. He's San Diego. And oh, he's from California. Okay. Yeah, he lived there till he was 21. And he... Uh, yeah, at 21 he moved to Seattle and he started playing with a bunch of bands and then eventually eventually joined Soundgarden. But when he was in San Diego, he was in a Kiss cover band called Kiss. <laughs> and... <laughs> and uh, called what? Kiss. They were just called Kiss, like the same as the band. And um, he was <laughs> he was only 13 but he somehow uh, met Paul Stanley uh, somewhere along the line and told Paul Stanley about his band. And then Paul Stanley served them a cease and desist <laughs> because they were using, they yeah. were gigging under the name Kiss. I bet they, I bet he did. Yeah, I can see him doing that. <laughs> oh, I thought yeah, that was a to, fun to story. Be fair, to be fair, that's not how you do cover bands, is it? No. No, I thought that was good, though. That was good. Yeah, that's cute. That's cute. I wonder if, well, if he's from San Diego, I wonder if, if he, I don't know, if he, if he hung around the same places as, as Eddie did. As Edward. Yeah. Um, there's not, there's, I don't see any mention of them knowing each other, but it doesn't, yeah. Yeah, so looking at it now, just, I've just, I'm just looking at it on his, um, on his Wikipedia actually. And so he moved back to, to San Diego after, after returning to Chicago, he did move back to San Diego a bit later in 1984 with his girlfriend and at that point he uh he started recording some demo tapes and got into a bunch of different bands and he he played in a number of different bands around around san diego yeah i mean i think he knew no he was he was involved with jack irons as well who was an early drummer for the red hot chili peppers oh was he yeah and then and jack irons joined pearl jam but chili peppers are very california aren't they yeah very much so yeah um, I didn't. I didn't look into Jack Irons very much, to be honest, um, because he well, he didn't. He wasn't around for a significant period of their um, of their history. No, but I think I think he is the. I think he's the one who knew of Eddie and said, "Hey, you should try and get him to do an audition for Pearl Jam." You know. <laughs> I feel like. <laughs> I feel like we've. Uh, <laughs> I think, feel like we've stumbled our way through this question by both of us just guessing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This is not. I think we better move yes. on quickly because I hope no one listening yeah, is taking you notes. Of, you've got lots of editing to do. Yeah. Um, <laughs> That's good. To <laughs> sure, can I? Can I? Can I just say? Can I just say? If there are any passionate Pearl Jam fans who are very frustrated that we are coming out with things that aren't exactly true, or um, <laughs> that's got to be one of our worst performances. Entirely... I think the last ten minutes is one of our worst performances in the history of this podcast. <laughs> anyway. Question four. Question four is Long Road from the Merkin Ball EP 
was written as a tribute to who? Oh my god. Uh these are, these are good questions, aren't they? These are tough questions, this one. I've never even heard of the Mercable EP. Oh. All right, <laughs> well, well, let us know what it is. Okay, mate. So the answer is Eddie Vedder's high school drama teacher, Clayton Liggett. That, you wouldn't oh, have guessed that. That's a cool name. <laughs> it's a cool name, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That would have been amazing if I did guess that. If you'd have just stabbed it in the dark, just gone, oh, I don't know, someone like uh, Clayton Liggett. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> just just putting random syllables together. <laughs> oh, that's what Clayton's parents did. Okay. No, that's not fair because Clayton is um is no longer with us. Harsh. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, yeah. So tell tell us more about this CP because I've never heard of it. Uh, I'll, I'll get to I'll get to the EP. So the quick thing about Clayton as to why a song was written about Clayton. So Clayton Liggett was his uh yeah high school drama teacher, and Eddie apparently attributes quite a lot of his success to to Mr. Liggett, who died in 1995, which, uh, 95 is the year that this EP came out, the Merkin Ball EP. So 20, yeah, little fun story for you about, about, uh, his relationship with Clayton Liggett. 2016, uh, Eddie returned to his high school incognito. He didn't tell them he was coming. There was a, there was a... Did he put on like a fake moustache, <laughs> like a Groucho Marx moustache? No. So I, I was reading an interview with, uh, this woman, Bonnie Wren, who was one of the organisers of the event, it was like an alumni event, and he'd contacted her and said, "Don't tell anyone that I'm coming because I don't want it to turn into the Eddie Vedder show. I want it. I, you know, I just, I'd rather just you know, be there rather than everyone know Eddie Vedder's coming and make it make it about mm. him, which is quite nice, I guess. Uh, anyway, he he went to this alumni event where there was some songs, it was a band or whatever, and he got up and sung his song "Long Road" for Clayton and. Um, uh, Clayton Liggett also had a building named after him at the school and Eddie has spoke about that and his experience with Mr Liggett and that so he, he really loves him and I also read an interview with uh, or not an interview just some, some quotes actually with Clayton Liggett's widow and she said that Eddie as a as a boy had had a really close relationship with her husband and actually he'd you know he'd, he'd come around to the house to talk with you know, hang out and talk with her husband so I think they were quite close even mm. though it was like a student teacher relationship but i think they he obviously looked up to him um but yeah that, that's all about all i know about clayton liggett but he liked him enough to write a song about him that's cool yeah we, we yeah there's it's good to hear about teachers that make a big impact on people oh yeah successful totally. people yeah, yeah that's really cool so the murky ball ep it's it's a really weird release this one uh it came out december 95 between vitalogy and no code and it was marketed as an ep but it's just two tracks so I don't know what the rules are to sell something. Is it, uh, is it not just a single with a B-side? But it's or like a double a double A-side single, isn't it? I was thinking that, but I, isn't it also how you market it? Because if you market it as a single, then it can be in the singles chart. Or if it's an EP, it can go in the album chart. That's right. We saw something like this with um, with Placebo, didn't we? Yeah, they released yes, something as an EP right. instead of releasing it as a, as a single to screw over the, the yes. chart people. Yes, that's right. It was it was a loophole because they yeah. were they were trying to sort of get back at the system. Well, yeah. that's the kind of thing Pearl Jam would have done in 1995. So maybe that's why they did it. Yeah, that's true. That's true. So it's it's sold as Pearl Jam cool. featuring Neil Young, but it's not really Pearl Jam because it's only 60% of the band. They're nice. They're nice tracks. They're really nice tracks, but they're um, they're not quintessentially Pearl Jammy songs from that period. But the reason they came about these two tunes with with Neil Young was because of Mirrorball, which was a a Neil Young Pearl Jam collaboration album. And I think that the two tracks on Merkin Ball were 
earmarked for Mirrorball, but for whatever reason didn't make it onto the album. So Pearl Jam released them under their name. That's cool. That's really cool. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. It wasn't wasn't my favourite time in their catalogue, that. Vitalogy to, to No Code. I mean, No Code I, I enjoyed, but um, Vitalogy is a bit of a... A bit of an odd one especially also where it is in the catalogue it seems like a bit of a blip between it's funny because the first time i heard vitalogy i actually thought it was a load of nonsense that was during my late teens i, I was listening to it thinking what what is going on and and actually you know i was making the mistake of this is what i used to do i used to listen to the first sort of five seconds of a track and if i didn't like the first five seconds then i'd just skip it <laughs> and there's lots of really odd beginnings in vitalogy especially the first track i'm just like what is this this is bizarre but it's but then i listened to it properly recently and and actually i really enjoy it it's, i was really presently surprised it, i mean it feels more like a i guess like a slightly more experimental arty version of verses it feels like it's got a similar sort of attitude to it but then that they are doing lots of interesting other other things with the instrumentation and and also they they did it they did a cool thing with the the packaging we were talking about packaging before uh, it was like a book and apparently this really pissed off a lot of record stores because they'd have to put the cd in 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 a different way to other cds because it was this, it was in this book format but oh, they boo-hoo. yeah i know <laughs> <laughs> Lots of interesting pictures and descriptions about vitology because vitology means like study of life. That's cool. Yeah, I just think I think musically yeah. that verses is quite is quite grungy, and then there's a there's a real step change if you go if you went straight to to no code because no code they really lean into the or mu- much more into the kind of Americana influence and much more folkier sounds yeah. sometimes, which I think they've always got an True. undertone of. But no code they is is the first time that you they really um sort of wear it proudly and i think vitality is maybe yeah. just a transition period and maybe that's why it feels to me a little bit more a little bit more uh true. wavy a little bit all over the place not all over the place that's not a fair that's thing true. to say but um yeah experimental is what you mm. said and i think that's probably about right i mean like like the, the track bugs at first i was like what the hell is this nonsense and now i really like it it's really grown on me <laughs> and and i saw a video of eddie actually playing it live on the stage he's got his accordion and everyone's singing along and it, it I kind of get it now, you know? Mm. One thing I will say is that I didn't realise before going into this, because I hadn't followed Pearl Jam over the years, and I, you know, I saw a few years ago, oh, I guess when Gigaton came out, I saw when that came out and thought, oh God, Pearl Jam have got an album out. Isn't that, isn't that wild? But actually it wasn't that wild because I didn't realise that they've been releasing music every few years, you know, ever since. So I, I yeah. didn't I didn't know until going into this episode how big their catalogue was. There's a lot of music there. Yeah, they've been pretty consistent. You know, they haven't had any hiatuses, I guess, because they clearly get on so well. You know, they're like a family. You you don't hear about any big disagreements really with the, with these with these five. You know, I mean, there were mm. some issues with um, I think with Dave Abrases, uh, you know, the, the drummer for an earlier part of their catalogue. Yeah. But generally, they they get on really well. Clearly, interesting fact: Did you know that Vitology, at the time, it was the fastest selling CD in history? No way, really. I did not. I did not read that. Yeah. That's uh, that's amazing. Eight hundred and seventy seven thousand sold in the first week. Wow. But yeah. I guess they had a they had a solid run, didn't they? With with ten and verses, they were two great great records to come out the gate with, and. I suppose there was two years between 10 and Versus, but then Vitality just came out just a year later. So I th- I think that 
yeah first week sales i would think would have been expected to be pretty high for that sure but it's it's still impressive considering they they weren't really doing music videos and mm. th- they had this very strained uh, relationship with music venues because a lot of music venues had ties with Ticketmaster. And mm. so they, they were basically playing in music venues that they had put to themselves, <laughs> like little outdoor arenas. Well, not so little, but you know what I mean. Yeah. They, they weren't affiliated with Ticketmaster. So, you know, to achieve all that the way that they did was is, is quite incredible, really. Yeah. Yeah, it is. All right. You are two out of four so far. <clears throat> Question five. Pearl Jam's MTV Unplugged performance was first released in November 2019. I'll clarify that because uh, the wording is not great. It was first released on uh, vinyl and CD in November 2019. What year was it recorded? Unplugged. Yep. Was, and this is a total stab in the dark, 1995. No, afraid not, mate. It was way earlier than that. It was way earlier. They, but, uh, yeah, I, they were. They just released ten. That was it. It was in 1992. Oh, of course, yeah. Oh, man, oh, yeah, it's amazing. Cool. Yeah, cool. it's amazing, huh? I, I, I can't. I don't know why they left it so long to release it as a as an album. To be honest, I mean, it was widely available and and you know on the internet and whatever. And I'm sure before that there were plenty of people that. I don't know. I'm sure there were ways to, to watch it before the internet was had it everywhere. But um, I don't know why they didn't release it as an album until 2019. It's bizarre. That is strange. Yeah, really strange. Because, I mean, I can't remember... The only MTV Unplugged I remember being a, a really successful CD album was Nirvana's MTV Unplugged. Which, as a kid, when I, you know, I'm sure when I was like a late teen... All my friends had the Nevada MTV unplugged, so there was a precedent set that you know this this could sell. <laughs> like, why don't we yeah, release it? Yeah. But yeah, I guess they just didn't yeah. care that much. So it was released in in November of 2019 as a limited release. To I don't know, I don't know how it was released as a limited release, but then it, it didn't come out to to the public until a year later, October 2020. It came out to the public. Big gap between recording and and release. It was performed March 1992. And it's a great mm. performance. You you watched it? Have you listened to it as well? I've watched it. I haven't. I haven't listened to it without watching it. And and I think that that does say something because I because watching it, uh, watching them perform it, I think it's fantastic. Um, but a lot of it is seeing the emotion that Eddie puts into it. Really, like he he does such a great performance. Um, I wonder if that translates if you're if you're not watching if you're just listening. I'm sure it does. But um, but yeah, I haven't I haven't yeah. listened to it unless I'm watching. So they are they just playing songs from ten? So the album is only seven tracks, and yeah, of course they'd, they'd only released ten, so they didn't have like a a major catalogue to to play off. So we got oceans, state of love and trust, state of love and trust. That was on the soundtrack to a film called Singles. Oh right, I think the band all appear on the, in the actual film. It's a it's a kind of romantic comedy film. It's a it's a Cameron Crowe film, and I, I didn't I haven't actually seen it but it's it follows youngsters f- at the height of the grunge movement in seattle so that's right yeah I it's pretty this. appropriate that they are involved in that yeah uh yeah it was a cool soundtrack yeah alice in chains Soundgarden, pearl jam oh amazing absolutely amazing oh you know what we're watching this weekend singles <laughs> yeah it so- sounds like, it's, it sounds it sounds like some sort of girls night in we're gonna watch singles <laughs> it does doesn't it but um, and then they had... I've got it here. They've got Alive, 
Yep. They've got Black, they've got Jeremy, Even Flow, and they've got Porch. So those are all songs from 10 except for State of Love and Trust. So that'll be interesting to listen to. I can't imagine how some of those would sound unplugged. I can imagine Oceans, because that's kind of chilled out and that's got a lovely guitar rhythm that would really suit an acoustic guitar playing. Yeah. But the rest of them, or maybe Black as well, I, I imagine that's that's beautiful unplugged but, but the rest of them I, I i can't imagine so i'll have to listen to this actually yeah so in my notes i have written that the guitars are a little bit too much at times and i felt that the guitars were a little too dense for an acoustic performance and they should have perhaps stripped it back a little bit uh black is a beautiful performance but it, but that beauty is carried by eddie really i think that the instrumentation across the board could have been a little bit softer yeah could have given more impact to to the fact it was an unplugged performance but that's probably just personal preference. But yeah, I think I, I do think that that Eddie's the the shining star definitely in that unplugged performance, big time. He's he's very cool. We're talking a lot about Eddie though, so yeah, sorry, yeah, the, yeah. What do you think of uh, Mike McCready and Stan Gossard? Well, <laughs> when when I started playing guitar as a teen, obviously I thought Mike McCready was like the coolest man alive because he was the lead guitarist, and lead guitarists are naturally very cool <laughs> it's, it's you know as a kid and that's what you think mm. but i still think he is a phenomenal lead guitarist i think everything he does is is really tasteful it's it's i think he's really underrated as well you know you, you don't really hear people talk about him but he, he's so good he's so good at solos and but he's not he's not a flashy guitarist he's not trying to show off i, I never get that sense from him he does he does great solos and um and yeah, he's not a household name. And I wonder why that is. And also, the grunge tends to get... You know, a lot of people incorrectly say, like, Nirvana killed the guitar solo. But actually, Nirvana do do a lot of guitar solos when you listen to their music. So I, I don't know where that came from. But certainly the guitar solo was, in a lot of grunge yeah. bands, not so massively important. But for Pearl Jam, they, they do... McCready does pull out some some really awesome solos. And uh, and yeah, he doesn't get the recognition. Yeah. I think I wonder why that is. But I guess maybe he's he's not um, he's not someone that uh, is grabbing the limelight too much. He's not like a he's not a character like a lot of a lot of um, lead guitarists are. No, but I don't think I think you could say that about all the band. You know, they're they're not. I mean, they've got obviously they've got character, but they're 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 working as a team. You know, they respect each other enough to to not let one person take over. Eddie is more prominent just in the sense, just in the fact that he is using his voice. So he is more likely to be a spokesperson. You know, that's just inevitable. But, you know, they are clearly a team that appreciate each other and very humble. You know, I really appreciate that about them. So just to go back a little bit, because you said, oh, there's no one really in the band that's kind of like a oh, saying that they're like a character. It's, it's kind of a bit demeaning, I think. But you know what I mean? And I think that's partly true, but then we've, we mustn't forget that every interview, before the, before the camera comes on, you're thinking, what's Jeff Ament going to be wearing on his head this time? Because he has quite the oh, collection yeah. of hats. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes, that's true. Yeah, I, I, I used to love his hats. <laughs> yeah, I mean, how many other musicians do you know that have really cool hats besides Slash? Like, Jeff's were on another level. Some of his hats are just... They looked like he he put them together twenty minutes before the before the show started. Actually, in yeah. the on the MTV Unplugged performance, he's wearing like a fur, like a, a really big fur hat. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, his his hats—they look like he's just come in f- from like a blizzard. <laughs> a lot of the time, yeah. But maybe he did put his hats together. You know, he's an artist. He's a he's a photographer. You know, sculptor. Maybe he made his hats as well. Jeff's the reason that I started to learn the fretless bass because I play fretless bass as well. A lot of people who play fretless, they cite you know jazz players like Jaco Pastorius particularly, but Jeff. His, his playing on 10 especially like I thought this is totally weird and unlike anything I've heard because it's all slippery and slidey and it's it's got a beautiful like rocking sound it's almost like an ocean his, his bass is, is, is beautiful and he also uses like I think he uses 8 string bass and 12 string bass so the way that works is it's like a 4 string bass but next to the strings are extra strings that are tuned an octave higher naturally they're tuned an octave higher but you can change the tuning so when you're playing a string you're actually playing two or three strings at once it can sound harmonically very interesting cool yeah stone we didn't mention stone i don't know much about stone but he's he's also he's an excellent guitarist and he's he's one of the best rhythm guitarists that i i can think of yeah, I like I like his sound. I'm I like his sound, and, and definitely in the heavier songs, he carries the carries the tunes quite a lot. But yeah, yes. I, I, I like his sound, and it's it's he's got a very distinctive Pearl Jam sound. Like it's I think for a lot of you know driving heavy bands, the rhythm guitarist is the one who contributes most to that band's sound. <laughs> yeah. I've heard it said anyway, and you know if you took them away, then they would be just a shell. And I think that's well, it's definitely the case with Pearl Jam. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, definitely. And and you got to give it to Stone because he's the, I mean, he's a Seattle native, but also he's the one that, not the one, actually, I'm not sure about Jeff, what Jeff was doing before Mother Love Bone, but Stone Gossard was uh, in Green River, Mother Love Bone, Temple of the Dog, and then Pearl Jam. He's the who's who, isn't he? He is the who's who of Seattle, Seattle grunge. In- just interesting tangents. Uh, so Stone, he was originally in a band called March of Crimes, and this band had future Soundgarden bassist Ben Shepard as a member. All right. It's a small, it's a small town, isn't it? Yeah. It's just mad. Absolutely yeah. mad. Can we say Matt Cameron, like how awesome is he as a drummer? Like, he's, yeah. he's so tight and, he, and he, everything he plays is so appropriate. You know, he doesn't, he doesn't overplay. Like all his drum fills are so like, ah, oh, that's just perfect. <laughs> just lovely. Yeah, I agree. I think it's, a little bit understated in a good way like he doesn't he doesn't uh, mm. grab the limelight too much but i think that's fine you know he, he knows when to shine i just want to quickly say that i was expecting gigaton and the 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 more recent albums to sound a lot mm. uh, a lot more different than the the earlier stuff and actually i think that they've they've progressed through their career quite sensibly um i think by the time mm. they got to to no code they'd kind of tried all the different angles that they were going for and yes they have kind of experimented beyond that with um, you know they've brought in more certainly with Gigaton it's, it's, it's kind of the biggest example where they've brought in more keyboards and a bit of synth and things like that and played with a bit more electronic mm. production on the on the album recordings but it's not wildly different to the earlier stuff it's you can still hear that it's the same band and and there are still yeah. tracks even on Gigaton that sound you know like the earlier stuff and sound very grungy uh, in, in places it's not like the whole album is cover to yeah. cover just yeah it, it just wasn't what i expected i was expecting it to sound a lot wilder a lot a lot just very very different yeah I and mean, a lot of bands they 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 go through maybe 20 years maybe even less and then they start 
going so far with electronic and dance sounds <laughs> and it's it's basically a different band isn't it for a, um, for a lot of acts i can think of yeah. you know it's it's almost like they've become a computer with, yeah. you know and pearl jam are definitely not like that at all <laughs> you know they're, they're all about the music yeah. not to sound really corny but good stuff man well somebody who is a super fan of pearl jam is mark mm. from new york and i caught up with him well more than a couple of days ago now because we've had we've had two days between uh, between last time i spoke to you so caught up with him earlier in the week let's say to find out how he would do with these five questions and to ultimately find out if he will do better than matt can he get more than two <laughs> out of five i imagine he got 10 out of five <laughs> we'll find out I'm of that perfect age where uh, I, I I was a freshman in high school in 1992, so you know that was that was when when grunge was breaking here, and uh, back back in that day, my freshman sophomore junior years of high school, um, I was way more of a fan of Nirvana back then, but obviously I was also super into Pearl Jam, um, and Alice in Chains, and Soundgarden, and Temple of the Dog, etc. Uh, so I was always a fan there. Now, obviously, Pearl Jam was the only of those bands that uh, didn't succumb to tragedies or breakups or et cetera. And they wound up developing a catalog that went on for the next 30 years. And I, uh, you know, increasingly uh, became more and more and more appreciative of that. Um, I actually did not see Pearl Jam live until the year 2000. Uh, there were some obstacles there because they had gotten into a fight with Ticketmaster. They had sort of done their own thing. They stopped touring for a little while. And then when they did tour, they were trying to do it on their own, only through the fan club. It was really difficult to ever see them live, uh, despite the fact that I was in high school and you know I, I didn't have the disposable income that you have later on in life. Um, I was still a concert goer in high school, and I would have loved to have gone to see them, um, but there were some obstacles in the way. So the first time that I actually got to see them live was in the year 2000, and that's really what sort of kicked this into overdrive. Once you start to experience the Pearl Jam live experience and how great they are, uh, when you when you get to see them in the flesh, uh, that definitely kicked it in, into hyperdrive, and I've been following them really ever since. And at this point, my my numbers are, I, I think I'm in the 60s. I've probably seen them live about maybe 60, 65 or 66 times, uh, all throughout this country as well as international countries. I just got back from London about a month ago. I saw the two night stand in Hyde Park, and uh, they are they are right up there uh, in my as my favorite band of all time, or or you know in my top in my top two or three at least, yeah. Yeah, that's amazing, and I think sixty sixty odd times live is probably the most I've ever, I've ever heard of speaking to fans. So that's that's amazing. Uh, have you ever met any of the band? Uh, believe it or not, no, I have not. All oh, right. Um, I know, right? That's the only that's the only thing that's left, I guess. Um, I mean, they they are obviously based on the on the opposite coast of this country. Um, you know, there's, I, I'm, a, I'm a fan of a lot of music acts that are here based in New York and New Jersey, uh, that I'm also super fans of, and I have met them, I guess, just because of proximity and they play, you know, locally a lot more frequently. Uh, whenever I see Pearl Jam, it's, you know, kind of in a, in an arena or a stadium in another city. So, I mean, I guess that's just a little bit more difficult to, uh, to have a chance encounter, which has not yet happened, but hopefully it will someday. Fingers crossed. And you know, are you still, are you still do you get still get the same buzz from seeing them live now as you did 20 years ago? 
I absolutely do. And I tell everybody that I tell, you know, every single time I've ever seen Pearl Jam, even if, you know, even if the show ends and I'm a little bit critical about it, you know, if, if I don't think the set list was the greatest, you know, it's listen, the Pearl Jam on a, on a, on a mediocre night for me is still better than, you know, than, than 90% of the bands out there. And almost every single time I've ever seen them live at some point during the show, I've thought to myself, this is the best band I'm ever going to watch live in my life at some point, you know, every single time it gets me there. They are just that good. That's brilliant. And I, and I reckon after 20 years of seeing them live, we can, we can safely say now that you're, you're, you're a fan for life. I don't think five years from now you're going to realize, oh, you know, maybe there's better out there. I think, I think, I think, safe that, I think that's a pretty safe, yeah, I think that's a pretty safe sentence. Yeah. Have you uh, been sucked into memorabilia? You know, <laughs> no, I have not. Um, Pearl Jam is one of those bands that does have a unique poster that they that they hire artists to to make for every single show, and the posters are incredibly popular. And fans, you know, camp out overnight at the merch stand to like get their hands on a poster. And you know, and I I, I would always joke, you know, thank God I don't care about the posters because I don't need to add that level of you know insanity to my life. I do enough crazy things for this band. Um, but having said that, obviously, you know, I kind of want a poster or two framed in my living room. So um, I did finally cave. I, I, you know, I picked a show that was very special to me and, and, and a poster's artwork that was very special to me. And I did. I waited online and I got it. But that's about the extent of it. I'm not I'm not one of these lunatics that uh, that waits on the merch line. There's a lot of Pearl Jam fans that do. There's a lot of Pearl Jam fans that are going to be listening to this that, you know, are going to are going to write you and, and, and tell you that they're one of the ones that always gets to the city like a day or two in advance and sleeps out overnight to get the sticker and the show specific T-shirt and the posters, et cetera. But I am not that guy. No, there's plenty of those out there. Don't worry. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Anytime, anytime I'm catching a flight home from a Pearl Jam show, you always see a whole bunch of people in the airport with poster tubes, you know, on their backs, and you kind of, you kind of know where that they're coming from the same place that you were. Yeah. Uh, so no memorabilia, not much memorabilia. But do you have a Pearl Jam tattoo? No, no. no I, I don't have any tattoos. I don't have any <laughs> tattoos. Well, I th- so far, I mean, uh, I've got no doubt that you're a super fan. Uh, I've got right. five questions for you. I, oh boy. I was not, uh, you know, I'm obviously aware of Pearl Jam and I, and I know the hits, but I've not been, I've not been a hardcore Pearl Jam listener in uh, my life. So, uh, I think that these are pretty good questions. There's a couple of, there's a couple of easy wins here, I think, but at least okay. three of them I think are pretty tough. So hopefully, I mean, I hope you don't come out of it five out of five. I'll be disappointed if you get five out of five. So hopefully I've got you on a couple. <laughs> All right. All right challenge accepted we'll see okay so question one when pearl jam played on snl in 1994 what was written on the headstock of eddie's guitar oh boy oh boy yeah you probably got me on this one i'm gonna tell you some details about that but i don't think i'm i I am not gonna remember specifically what you asked i want to say that that is one of the very rare saturday night live appearances where a band got three songs rather than two and i can definitely tell you that that was the world premiere of not for you um which was you know which was a song from the upcoming vitology album so they were probably on saturday night live in either april or may of 94 and vitology was released in the fall in november and that was the first song we heard that was going to be off Vitology. And I know the local radio station here in New York, Q104.3, and probably nationwide, other radio stations were playing the audio clip of that all summer long. We were hearing Not For You all summer, 
Uh, and then the first single that came up, I told you, was Spin the Black Circle. So I can tell you all of those details that I remember about the Saturday Night Live, <laughs> but I cannot tell you what was on his guitar. That's all impressive information. Well, you've not got the point, but I wonder if you'll get it if I say it's in reference to an, a, a massive event that happened eight days before their Saturday Night Live performance. Oh, uh, well, it had to be the death of Kurt Cobain. That's right. Yeah, he had Kurt yeah. written on the on the headstock of his guitar. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. They played a they played a show at the Fox Theater in Atlanta, which was it was on Easter Sunday, and it was broadcast live on radio stations. And I want to say that was maybe two days. That was the first show they played since the discovery of Kurt's body. Um, oh, and really? So yeah, I guess that makes sense. Saturday Night Live would have been six days after that. Wow. So they played they played a show two days after. Yeah. Yeah. They were on tour at the time in the spring of '94. Oh, wow. Yeah, because they had a bit of a weird relationship, Kurt and, and Eddie. It, Kurt had said a lot of things about Pearl Jam and, and other peers Correct. publicly. Yeah. But I think that Eddie seems to have looked up to him a lot. Correct. Even in the in the, in the the Cameron Crowe documentary film, the Pearl Jam 20, he kind of references it that, you know, he, he definitely remembers speaking to him on the phone um, a little bit, you know, after kind of all of that back and forth in the press. And yeah, it was certainly, I mean, I, you can't call them friends, but obviously they were acquaintances and they knew each other in the scene. And uh, yes, yeah, certainly there was a, a mutual respect, despite maybe some of the things that came out in the press early on. Yeah. So no, no points, but that was a lot of information that I didn't know. <laughs> so, <laughs> <All right. laughs> that was one of my tough ones, though, so I'm happy with that. So question all right, two. All right. Question two is, who photographed the Angora goat on the cover of Versus? Uh, Jeff Amon. Yeah, you got it. That's, uh, that's nope. 50% now, one out of two. I don't know anything about that, really. I just know that he took the photograph. Um, what favorite album cover? I don't know. I mean, honestly, none of them are, are spectacular. I mean, some of them are better than others. Um, I don't know. I guess I guess, you know, it's the the band of brothers on uh, on the front cover of 10, I guess, has got to be the iconic one, right? It is. But I think I, I would I would say that there's they do have good album covers, actually. I, and I think quite a few of them are very iconic. I think Binaural, I think, is a super iconic cover. Pearl yeah. Jam which I found out today apparently a lot of people don't like. The avocado, yeah. The avocado? Okay. Yeah, I mean, I heard yeah. that apparently a lot of people dislike that album cover and it was once voted one of the worst album covers of all time, but I think it's it's very iconic. I, can't, I remember it. You know, I don't really have an opinion one way or the other on the avocado. Um, I do, I like, I mean, I guess I like the story more than I like the art, but I, I do kind of like the format of the CD of Vitology. And, you know, the fact that that yes. was that was a, a, a real life book, you know, that Eddie found at a garage sale from the turn of the century, you know, it's about sort of holistic remedies and, you know, um, uh, and, and it wasn't only the cover, but they sort of modeled the entire, you know, the lyric sheets and whatnot over, uh, you know, uh, based on based on that book. And I thought yeah. that was kind of a cool concept. So, I mean, I guess if I have to answer, that would probably be my favorite concept. But I mean, just just the five hands, you know, together in unison for 10, I think is, is the iconic one. And that would probably be the, the, you know, my final answer as far as my favorite yeah. goes. Okay, well, we're back on track now. So question three, what baseball yeah. team does Eddie Vedder support? Oh, he is an enormous fan of the Chicago Cubs. And I've had the pleasure of seeing them play Wrigley Field five times. Oh, and have you have you ever seen Eddie Vedder at a Chicago Cubs game? No, I, you know, again, I don't live in Chicago. I've been I've been to Chicago for Cubs games, but um, but no, you know, I, I don't I don't go to Cubs games regularly. I'm I'm a New Yorker and I'm a Yankees fan here, so uh, no, I haven't. But I've seen Eddie play play the field. 
Uh, Pearl Jam has played there five times. I've been there for all five shows. Uh, oh, the right. first one was probably the most famous one where he actually brought out Ernie Banks and they did, you know, Someday We'll Go All the Way together. And then uh, Pearl Jam played a two-night stand there and that was in 2016. And that was the year that a couple months after that, the Cubs would actually finally win the World Series. And Danny Clinch did a whole documentary about those two shows at Wrigley and he followed Eddie uh, over the course of the playoffs. And so you can you can watch that. That's the, the name of the documentary is called Let's Play 2. Oh, uh, so that's a I'll great sort that. of, yeah, that's a great movie where you sort of, you know, Eddie's love of the Cubs as well as Pearl Jam playing Wrigley sort of meet in that film. And, and there's some great footage in there. There's a bar right across the street, a famous Wrigley Field bar called Murphy's Bleachers. And the night before... Uh, the night before the first Pearl Jam show, uh, Pearl Jam just sort of played an acoustic setup on the roof, and there were a whole bunch of people gathered around, uh, you know, outside the bleachers uh, on the street, you know, sort of listening, and Eddie is waving. And there's some great interview footage in there that's highly worth seeking out. Yeah, that sounds brilliant. I'll take a look for that. Absolutely. Good work. Okay. Well, that that was that was a throwaway one. That was an easy one, wasn't it? So question falls a bit back on track with the with the difficult ones, I think. So long road from the Merkin Ball EP was written as a tribute mm-hmm. to who? Mm. Okay, I thought I thought the question was going to be a different one. Um, it is off the Merkin Ball EP, but it was originally, and I wonder, uh, listen, I don't know the answer, but I wonder if, because it originally did not appear on the Merkin Ball EP, it was originally a duet with an Indian singer named Nusrat Fatah Ali Khan, and it was on the soundtrack to the Sean Penn film Dead Man Walking. And so I'm wondering if that's what it was written for, uh, if it was written as a tribute to um, to the character that Sean Penn played in that film. But but I don't know. So that's my guess. It's not correct, but that's very interesting information that I did not know. Um, the correct answer is uh, it's a tribute to Eddie Vedder's high school drama teacher, Clayton Liggett. Ah, gotcha. Which is apparently Clayton Liggett was a, a massive influence on Eddie, and uh, he he really looked up to him. And he I has... definitely have heard that name before in interviews. That's mm. that sounds familiar to me, but I but I did not. I would I would never have specifically tied that to that song or that lyric. It's one of those facts. You either know it or you don't, don't you? Um, yeah, yeah. And it's a very uh, it's a very transferable song. You know, it's it's a very emotional song that you oh, could really yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, hundred percent. And I think that they used. Did they not use it uh, after 9-11, Long Road, for a lot of... Uh, it w- yes, they did. They did. They used it on the telethon after 9-11. Mm. I think it's just one of those tunes that lyrically uh, falls falls right in place in any um, sort of emotional setting. Yeah. But yeah, either know it or you don't, not a problem. So you're, you're two for four. If you get if you can get All the right. fifth one, then uh, three is uh, is a very ex- respectable number. Three, three out of five is very okay. respectable. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. All right, here we go. Question five is, Pearl Jam's MTV Unplugged performance was first released in November 2019, but what year was it recorded? It, I mean, it was either 92 or 93. I want to say it was in the fall. No, wait, hold on. It was... <laughs> it... Uh, 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 uh. See, I'm see, I mean, I could tell you... That they were on Lollapalooza in 92, and then they did a Europe, and this is when 10 was exploding, and they did a European tour, and they had some problems with equipment, and they wound up doing an acoustic set, and that sort of inspired them to do to do uh, an MTV Unplugged, and so it had to have been after that, and Versus was released in 93, so it had it before that, so I'm going to say fall of 92. You got it, yep. 
<laughs> that was good. That was good investigation work. I don't know why they left it so long. To be honest, it would have made a lot of money even ten years earlier. It sure would have. It was an, it was one of the better unplugs. I mean, it's right up there with the iconic MTV unplugs. It's, you know, Nirvana, Eric Clapton. I mean, Pearl Jam is right up there. Watching them perform whilst hearing it, it's a, it's a fantastic performance, and it's uh, yes, it yeah, is. There's a lot of emotion from Eddie. He's um, he puts a lot into the into the live performance. Uh, so yeah, fa- fantastic, um, fantastic investigation work there. You ended on three out of five, uh, which is is pretty close to super fandom. And I think that your your story anyway, uh, you are a super fan. Yeah. For those that are listening that don't know Pearl Jam, um, you know what would you say to, to to get someone into them? I I would tell you that there are no matter what music service you're listening to, whether it's Spotify, whether it's Apple Music, there are literally hundreds of live full concerts available for you to stream and that's the direction that you need to go um i myself and probably any other pearl jam super fan will tell you um we don't remember the last time that we listened to studio albums of pearl jam i mean it's all about it's all about the live recordings um they are not a jam band in the sense of you know the allman brothers or the grateful dead or fish um you know where where songs may take on dramatically different forms from night to night um but but the overall shows do you know the stories he tells between songs the structure of the shows the way you know whether they start out rocking or whether they start out with 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 three songs acoustic um and just every they are a live band every song is significantly better in a live recording than it is in a recorded one so i would i would start there i would pick a random show from a random city and stream it on spotify and if you like it pick another one and if you're not into it and you listen to two or three then maybe they're not the band for you but that's really the way you have to experience pearl jam you have to you have to listen to them live there you go thank thanks mark what a legend super fan well three out of five super fan (laughs) <laughs> You're still a super fan, though. I mean, I haven't seen a band more than twice. Oh come on, my record. So what's the what's the point of the what's the point of the, the the show then? Isn't it to find the super fans? Five out of five, you're a super fan. Three out of five, you're you're into the band. Yeah, but seeing seeing Pearl Jam that many times, that's not just being into the band, is it? <laughs> yeah, no, he's 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 a legend. Mark is a legend. Um, and it makes me it, it really reminds me that in this show we've spoken to you know so many fans and it i'm sure i've said this countless times but we speak to so many different types of fan like people that express their fandom in different ways and mark just seems like he's really into their live performance um you know hasn't got loads of memorabilia hasn't got the tattoos doesn't seem wildly interested in meeting them just wants to see them live and that's cool. I don't think I've really spoken to someone who uh, who ex- you know, expresses their their fandom in that way before. You know, we've spoken to people that have tons of tattoos of their favorite band, people that correct, collect the posters and the memorabilia, and wait outside the backstage doors waiting to meet them on every show, and just different. You know, yeah, people people grab hold of different parts of of the music and go, yeah, this is the bit that that I really want, and yeah, it's awesome. Yeah, I mean, I guess, I guess if you're traveling the world to see a band, like that's that's like all your holidays, isn't it? <laughs> all your traveling is about this band. Yeah, totally. What's the most times you've seen someone live? I've just I've seen Primus twice. <laughs> that's it. That's my record. 
I think that's yeah. more than me. I don't think I've ever seen a band more than once. It's, it sounds sounds odd because, you know, people have seen their favourite bands at least, well, people I've spoken to have seen their favourite bands at least five or six times. But, you know, I, I seem to like bands who don't really come to the UK very often. <laughs> yeah, and, and less so now as well. It's, yeah, exactly. it's not opened up as much. Did you... I can't remember if I mentioned this at the beginning of the episode, but did you see the controversy with the Bruce Springsteen tickets in the last last couple of weeks? No. What happened? Oh, he was getting uh, attacked. He became a bit of a scapegoat, I think, because he's not the only one that's doing it. But someone wrote an article on you know one of the papers about the fact that there were tickets for a Bruce Springsteen show going for £5,000 and how unacceptable that is, which it is totally unacceptable. When we were kids, you used to be able to go to a music festival, like a two-day music festival for 50 quid. Uh, anything more than... I mean, you, nowadays, you don't see an A-lister for less than 100 quid at all. You know, it's, I think... No. So I think that... Uh, I can't remember who it was. It's not Ticket... Is it, is it still Ticketmaster that's the big name in, in tickets? It is in the US. I'm not sure if it is in other places. Okay, so, well... So- was was that the official was that the official price of the tickets or was that people buying tickets and then selling them on no it was the, it was the official price but basically they, the whoever it was i can't remember if it was ticketmaster who whoever they were questioned about it um by some media outlets and they said yes we are selling some tickets for 5000 but they're premium tickets they said not all our tickets are that expensive and uh you get a a, a premium viewing position or whatever i don't know but they said that the average ticket price for that particular show was 250 but that's still steep like yeah. I, I, like if yeah that's still crazy money crazy money i think it's, but maybe we're getting old it is a lot yeah i, I don't know i guess uh if, if, I mean, if people will pay that then that's what they'll charge for it you know but i wonder what the premium tickets are like sat, sitting on the stage you know in an armchair i, I can't think what you you would need to sell me for me to pay five grand to go see Bruce Springsteen. Like, don't get me wrong, he's a legend. He's a legend. I, and I would I would go to a Bruce Springsteen show for the right price, but five grand is not the right price. I can tell you how much I paid to see Prince okay. in his O2 tour. Uh, £31.21. There you go. That's normal, isn't it? Because he had an album called 3121. And that oh, was, that was right. a reference to that. Oh, thank God that yeah. the inflation didn't screw that up for him. Because imagine if, <laughs> imagine if he was like, "I really want to do the ticket price thirty one twenty one." They'd be like, "No, <laughs> three thousand one hundred twenty one pounds." Yeah. <laughs> yeah, my mum went to see Celine Dion a couple of years. It was probably about two years ago here in the UK, and uh, there were three of them, uh, her and two friends, and I think they paid close to a grand for for the three of them. But I'm, I think I'm more likely to pay that kind of money for Celine Dion than for Bruce Springsteen. I think Celine Dion would be a a force of nature to see to see live. No? She, she, no, she's definitely a force of nature. I mean, goodness me, yeah, she is. Um, but I guess it's also about the the atmosphere, you know, Bruce Springsteen and his E-band. No, sorry, his E-street band. <laughs> his Bruce E-band. <laughs> They're all they're all like on computers, like as little graphics. Um, I was thinking more like a bunch of rave, a bunch of rave boys doing big fish, little fish. <laughs> <laughs> I'd pay 
<laughs> I'd pay five thousand pounds for that. Definitely. Yeah. Um, no, I was going to say um, she's definitely a force of nature for sure. But I think people go on about Bruce Springsteen and his band just being incredible life and the mm. atmosphere and the audience and uh, the songs that people sing along to. Uh, you know, it's there's something about live performances for certain bands that you can't really emulate just by listening to a recording of a concert. You have to be mm. there. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Um, I think that's why people rave so much about seeing Bruce Springsteen. You know, I don't know if you'd get that from a Celine Dion concert, but she's definitely, she's definitely a powerhouse singer for sure. Oh, definitely. Yeah. We don't get those anymore, do we? <laughs> Granddad. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, wow, that, that was possibly one of the oldest sentences you've ever said. I know, but I can't help it. It's, it's true, though. It's true. Yeah, that it's true. It's like true. That. All right, Mariah Carey and Celine Dion, who would win in a fight? Like a vocal fight. Oh, a vocal fight. Yeah, a physical fight, Mariah Carey's got her easily. She's a good pinner. Yeah, um, definitely. Yeah, she'd snap her like a twig. A vocal fight. I think that Celine Dion's got the stronger voice. I think that Mariah Carey obviously hits notes that Celine Dion can't reach. But um, I think that Celine Dion's got the got more power, and and uh, she's yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I I, I like I've, my money's on Celine. My money's on Celine. Okay. Okay. What about you? To be honest, I haven't really thought about it. <laughs> well, um, clearly, I hadn't either. So <laughs> don't worry about that. My money's on. No, my money's on on Mariah. Definitely. Okay. Well, um, do you want to set that up, or shall I? How much would you pay for tickets to see that? Do uh, Celine Dion and Mariah Carey do like a a, a voice off? Like, yeah, like a like a like a battle. Um, I've got to be honest; it doesn't excite me that much. <laughs> anyway, let's move on. Because, uh, if yeah. I thought it would, and I'm disappointed now. If you are a super fan of of somebody, of anyone, like Mark and you want to be featured on an episode, then please do get in touch with us. You can reach us at superfannews.net and fill out the contact form there. Or you can find us on Facebook or Twitter by looking for Superfancast. And we will be back in a couple of weeks for another episode. And in that episode, we're going to be looking into uh, the life and times and career of... Rick James. Rick James, indeed. Yeah, very exciting one. Uh, are you excited? I'm so excited, and especially since we only chose him like five minutes ago. <laughs> yeah, we did a little 180. We thought we knew, and then we plucked Rick James out of the sky. So exciting. Yeah, it's exciting. Um, so yeah, so join us in two weeks' time. Stay safe, everybody. Keep rocking, and we'll see you next time. Bye.